often exposure to new ideas, exposure to education is really an ignition of a, of a lifelong burning fire um, and nobody can pour that into you. Uh, they can only spark that, but ultimately you have to feel that fire. Welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds Podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, Shwamak Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. At Great Business Minds, we would like to thank our sponsor for this year. GBM is now brought to you by Prescott & Co, a leading award-winning City of London law firm internationally recognized for its expertise in the digital infrastructure industry, as well as the telecoms and tech sector work more broadly. Whatever your legal or regulatory needs are, including outer space, Prescott & Co can support you, so feel free to reach out to them at www.prescott.com. And in this episode, we are joined by someone whose focus will change data center construction and how mega projects are built. A fellow of Cable College, Dr. Ati Fenser, is a senior teaching fellow on the Master of Sciences in Major Program Management and the Australian Major Projects Leadership Academy. He is the founding director of the Oxford Programme on the Sustainable Future of Capital Intensive Industries, Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. Atif is also the executive chairman of Foresight Works, an Oxford-based technology firm building next-generation software for the world's megaprojects. He has been at the University of Oxford since 2006, and until 2010 he undertook his PhD at Barnos College with a prestigious Clarendon Scholarship from Oxford University Press. Atif was a postdoctoral research fellow at the BT Center for Major Program Management at said Business School from 2010. From 2015 until 2020, he was the program director of the Masters in Major Program Management and continues to be one of the senior teaching fellows on the course's faculty. Atif also teaches on the UK and Australian government's Major Project Leadership Academy, and in 2018, Atif began an appointment as a visiting scholar at the Stanford University's Global Project Center and a visiting professorship at Tsinghua University. He previously undertook his bachelor's degree at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, where he majored in philosophy, politics, and economics. And Atif, this is quite an extensive list of accomplishments already, uh, and it is a pleasure to have you talking to us on the, on the GBM podcast, and I can't wait to hear, um, I, I can't wait to listen to what you've got to say as we, we speak for the next hour, hour and a half. I think the, the area where you operate within is quite interesting because it's the intersection of data center construction and artificial intelligence, uh, which is not only just timely, but also the, the, the deliveries that this, this um, hands over to operators in terms of cost control um, and speed of delivery of facilities. It's a whole new segment that's going to be very much needed. But uh, before we go into, into the company itself and the market as well and the need for this uh, in the current economic and macroeconomic scenario that we live in, uh, let, let's talk about you and your your personal journey and how you view how you view life and how life treated you over the years <laughs> until the moment that you're here now. So my first question, which is the one I ask everyone, is where did you come from? Uh, how did you get involved with the data center space and then AI as well? So John, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you. Uh, data centers are very close to my heart. The 21st century is unthinkable without the data center. So if you think about the 20th century and the power plant of the 20th century and the aircraft, in a similar way, 21st century is unthinkable without uh, data centers that are powering the fourth industrial revolution. 
Um, I got involved with the data center sector about five years ago. I've been a researcher uh, on major and mega projects at the University of Oxford. Um, so I've been very uh, curious about the outcomes of these projects, what managers and, and leaders hope to achieve at final investment decision and what they get uh, when the projects open. Um, and data centers are relatively high value, but less complex assets. Um, and I was fascinated by one fact um, that at that time, uh, there were nearly 7 billion pictures being uploaded to the internet every single day. Uh, and the human population was just shy of 7 billion then. Um, and 2 billion were being uploaded to, to Facebook. Um, so it's clear to me that data center growth is not about to uh, slow down for the extended future. Um, and because, as I mentioned, they are relatively high value and, and lower complexity assets, I did not expect to find problems of cost overruns and time overruns in these assets. I thought they'd be very high performing, fine tuned assets. Um, so I started collecting data and I discovered that actually it's not the case. Uh, data centers do face very similar challenges to other asset types like rail projects or uh, signature architecture or nuclear power plants and the like uh, in terms of these challenges. So that got me quite an interest in that. My journey into the world of major mega projects that brought me to data centers started a long time ago when I started my I did my undergraduate at the University of Oxford in Washington, D.C. Um, and immediately after my undergraduate, uh, where I studied philosophy and economics, I got a job at the World Bank. Um, and as a neophyte on the team, I had the great opportunity to travel to well over 100 countries, um, looking at variety of investments the World Bank was making uh, in developing uh, countries in various projects. And many of these projects were not going very well in terms of their cost and time outcomes. So I'd asked my boss, Julie, lots of questions around, hey, Julie, these projects that we're investing in are not going so well, you know, uh, how come? And she jokingly slapped my wrist and say, young man, don't ask these impertinent questions. This is not going to help your career. Uh, but I persisted asking those questions that led me to come to do my doctorate at Oxford. And with several colleagues, we built the world's largest data set of its kind, tracking the outcomes of major and mega projects. Um, and then, so that's fed into... Uh, all of this, this work that's brought me um, to, to the world of data centers and artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And what you said as well, that you, you find out that data centers do face similar challenges um, to other industries. I think, um, and I mean, I've only been involved for less than 10 years with the industry, but I feel during the cloud revolution, there was so much demand. There was not, uh, people weren't paying so much attention to some other elements of building a facility, like the architectural aspect, for example. Um, let alone then the materials that go into it, because the demand was so much that the rush to just push things out, um, it was greater than the, the demand to look into what was actually being produced and built. Um, and uh, I'm sure we're going to touch more on that as well. But I think what you, two things you said that they really took out to me, it's a hundred countries. And I think traveling and learning about different cultures is the best way to build business um, and to, to, to learn how to be a better human as well at the end of the day. Uh, and then what you said about the pertinent questions. And for me, that's that is how you grow. Um, it's by asking the questions that other people don't want, don't want you to ask. Um, so I think, yeah, whenever someone tells you not to ask those questions, because it won't take you anywhere, then you get somewhere and then you look back and say, ha. Ah. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say as well, because I think maybe you've already kind of answered my next question as well, but based on everything you said, so what sort of motivate, motivates you in life um, to get out of bed and go and do what you do on a daily basis? Because uh, of course there's, there's challenges in the data center space, but 
for you to go and, and go found a company, for you to, to be heading that company and everything, it can't just be um, about the, the assets. It has to be something more, a bit of a passion as well. So what motivates you um, on your day-to-day -day basis? Absolutely, uh, Jean, it's a really good point. I think the question point is really important, which is asking lots of what may seem to be impertinent questions leads to a lot of innovation. Um, so everybody has a voice and they should use that uh, to address those questions. So what motivates me in life? I think it's sort of a, uh, two big things I would say. One is um, really elite performance. So, you know, uh, in whatever pursuit you have, whether you're an athlete or a professional or uh, an academic, uh, doing the best you can at a world-class level in that field, um, I find fascinating, um, you know, and I, I strive for that in my own life, uh, but I also love when people strive for that in their own specific areas of specialism as well. Um, and the second piece, because I'm uh, also an academic, is this notion of truth-seeking. Truth so I like uh, doing things not just at a very high level, but doing it in, in a very kind of solid process or in a truthful manner, uh, if you will. Um, in terms of business, uh, one thing I've learned as I teach at a business school, making money in life is easy. Uh, people make money in all sorts of ways, uh, and there are many hooligan ways of making money. Uh, making money in our, uh, in, with a truthful process is, is harder. Uh, so it sort of sets us up at a higher standard. And I like that. I like this aspect of doing business, but doing it with very robust uh, process, uh, with a great degree of transparency, with a great degree of, uh, uh, with a very high standard. That's interesting. I was going to actually ask you, did you, was it hard for you with an academic background to come into the data center space? Um, so the, the thing they were saying, building so, more solid foundations, really looking to the details, the, the in-depth. Um, side of things because we know data centers are quite a secretive um, mm -hmm. industry it's very much uh, you don't need to know about me we'll just do it and that's it you'll just use what we do was that did you struggle at some point especially at the beginning to break through the door and uh, kind of get the data that you needed to, to do what you wanted look at yes is the short answer and and the struggle has is not concluded it's still a struggle in, in many ways I don't um, think it would ever be concluded <laughs> exactly and I think that's part of the frontier, the performance frontier of the industry as well. So um, I did some research looking at the, we collected some data on data center projects, uh, looking at cost and time outcomes. So essentially uh, what leaders forecast uh, in terms of budget and time it will take them to build a hyperscale data center, for instance, um, and the actual time it takes and the actual cost it takes. What we discovered was quite surprising. So data centers tend not to have very large cost overruns. On average, the cost overruns are just 6%. Uh, these are some of the lowest cost overruns across the industry. The only other sectors with lower overruns would be uh, solar plants, for example. Um, uh, whereas, you know, for example, the rail sector has average cost overruns of around 42% or dams of 90% and nuclear power plants even larger. So, so that's the good side of the performance. The area where data centers are lagging behind is time overruns. So on average, data centers have time overruns of 34%. Um, and time is money as a general proverb, but particularly in the data center world, because demand is so high and the suppliers of data center services are so constrained uh, with that demand that 
everyday loss is a huge amount of revenue lost for them and a huge amount of dissatisfied customers. Um, so time it becomes this really important dimension for them. Uh, moreover, the industry is now baked in a lot of penalties in these contracts, um, you know, which were not necessarily exercised uh, previously, but is becoming a little bit more uh, edgy um, in terms of extracting those penalties for delay. So, so that's sort of become uh, an important uh, aspect of that. So we we continued down that track and we looked at projects that were that came in on time and on budget against projects that blew both their budget and time. So you could sort of see a variance between systematically good projects and projects that are systematically performing worse than the uh, their average cohort. Um, and what we discovered was quite surprising. So first of all, you could really dis distinguish between good projects and bad projects. There's a, there's a Pareto principle. Nearly 20% of the projects are very good and 80% of the projects uh, you know, fall in the bad to disaster category. And that's reflected in private equity returns uh, from these asset types as well. So you can see that good teams that perform well perform extremely well, and average teams perform poorly. So if you're going to do something above average, you need to, you know, go back to that performance standard that I was speaking about um, earlier on. And that performance standard, the first uh, element of that was open-mindedness. So what my interviews showed was teams that were extremely secretive perform badly and teams that were open performed well, which is a surprising finding. So part of my message to the industry is, this legendary secrecy of the data center industry is hurting the industry, it's not helping it. And it's often a guise for hiding bad performance than real commercial imperative. So I'd really encourage the industry, all the listeners today, um, to whatever concerns you have about secrecy, please give them up. They're not helping your, your, your team and your overall performance as a team. I think I absolutely agree with you. And I, I think there's quite a lot of people out there, um, even listening to this podcast as well, they will agree with you because th this is a big topic um, in the industry. And I think as we've seen the investors moving in more strongly um, into it, and especially the, the, the different ergonomics of who's backing all these investments between peers and sovereign funds and family funds um, and all those sort of things, you've really seen who the winners and the losers are um, in terms of who gets acquired and who doesn't, who whose deal keeps falling apart um, because of exactly um, secrecy and some uh, some pushback. Um, so I, I think that's a very good point. And I, I think what you mentioned as well about the contract penalties, that's something actually I've, I haven't heard before, uh, but it, it does make sense because we are still building so much and, um, and leasing out so much based on demand um, that a lot of things do get overlooked. Um, so, so there might be a need to, and I, I guess a lot of people don't like it, but there might be to, there might be a need to have some overarching um, supervision of what's happening within the, the, the legal side of the contracts um, that are put out there, because also they are not short contracts. We're not talking about one to two years, we're talking five, 10, 20 years um, contracts in some cases. Um, and especially when it comes to land, then we're talking about contracts of 40, 50 years, if not more. Um, so I think that that's a very, very good point. Um, I was going to ask as well, and uh, I mean, I know one of the people that will not be part of the answer next, which is your teacher from Oxford, they told you not to ask questions. But uh, who who has been over your your life? Who has been a, an inspiration to you? Someone that kind of was sort of a mentor to you, that kind of shaped you as a person, as a business person. Um, someone that you just look up to. Who who's been that person um, in your journey? 
Uh, look, I've been very lucky to have multiple mentors. So uh, at Georgetown, it's a Jesuit university, even though I grew up in Pakistan, uh, you know, in, a, in an Islamic uh, family background, um, I was also really benefited from the, uh, the Jesuit education. Um, so a number of my teachers were incredibly uh, influential, uh, many of them uh, Jesuit priests. But, um, you know, later on in my career in Oxford, my colleague Ben Flyberg, um, who is uh, one of the world's most cited scholars, in the field of major mega projects has been instrumental. We've co-authored uh, many times as a close person friend, but also a mentor. Uh, and I think it's been driving that clarity around what amazing performance looks like, both in one's own personal work, but also uh, when looking at projects and mega projects in terms of what good projects do and look like in terms of overcoming our human biases, as well as um, this issue of truthfulness that we were discussing earlier on. Um, and I think he's been an inspiration uh, in, uh, in, in building that. And then we still collaborate and, and write, uh, write together very frequently. Hmm, interesting. And I was going to ask, because of course, the mentorship is an, an extremely important part of the foundation of a leader. Uh, but then it's also very important to know where the barriers lie. So when you go into business, when you when you look at joining up with someone, for example, you co-founded Foresight with someone else, when you when you go into those side of deals, what's something that's non-negotiable to you? What's the one thing that you be like, right? This is not for me. I'm not taking on this because I don't agree with this one thing, and this is my condition. Right. right. So look, so there's some red lines. So for example, uh, I don't work with coal fire power plants, for example. You know, don't don't touch them or, or things of that nature. You know, um, so that's kind of just a very basic. You know, I I. I, I partly because of my work on sustainable mega projects. So that's kind of one big uh, red line. Uh, but the other red line, again, going back to, uh, you know, uh, if I sense that there's, um, which is rarely the case, by the way, uh, I, I think many uh, major companies uh, that we deal with in, um, you know, Western Europe and North America are very conscientious about this. Uh, but uh, again, I, I want to work with teams that are, performance oriented and they want to get better. Um, I, I'm not sure who said this, but uh, there's a famous quote um, that um, um, if you're trying to cure somebody, um, ask them whether they're willing to give up that's ailing them. Um, so oftentimes good performance requires giving up bad habits. Um, so I'm often searching for um, for that in my conversations with teams. If a team is motivated, to perform well, uh, as a team is motivated to give up its bad habits, like secrecy, um, I'm more inclined to work with them. Um, and if, and on the other hand, if they're entrenched in those bad habits, um, you know, my time can be better spent elsewhere. Hmm. Absolutely, I totally, I totally agree with that. Um, and then, I mean, that kind of segues, segues me into my next question, which is around when things don't go so so right as well. Because uh, I mean, make, making mistakes is part of the journey of building something. Um, and, and sometimes how you deal with a, with a mistake, how you turn things around, it's it shows more of a person than if things go well and success is um, is on the other side of the road. Um, what's been something within these years of you being involved with the data center space, and it does not have to be related to foresight, um, what's been something that uh, either a decision that you regret making or something that went wrong, especially like when you talk to a client, for example, uh, and then how did you spin that into a positive? How do you how do you pick up something bad and made it to into a good thing? 
Really good question. So I think um, for listeners who uh, don't necessarily know about Foresight, so Foresight is a company I co-founded five years ago, um, essentially benefiting from my research work at Oxford University. And we are an AI company that helps projects be delivered faster. So we work with people and really enable them with uh, AI technology with a focus on time. So the pivotal insight for us was the company tend to obsess with cost, uh, but don't spend enough time thinking about time. And as a result, uh, they slip on that. So, so we are in a way the time app. To your question about what tends to work well and what hasn't worked so well, I think what works really well is a collaborative approach. So, um, you know, if uh, and so what I've learned is if because we deal with schedule information that often comes in the form of a Primavera P6 or Microsoft Project uh, MPP files, these data are very sensitive. And I think what I've learned is a collaborative approach that helps to align teams internally but also between the owner and contractor is absolutely essential. So any attempt of forcing things down people's throat, given the sensitivities around claims and penalties, you know, uh, is 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 not a good uh, good thing to do. So I think the key key thing I've focused on is establishing that trust, establishing that confidence at the at the team level early on, and also in between the teams. So you know, different personas we work with, planner versus the project managers or superintendents versus risk professionals, they think about the world in very different ways. Um, part of our role, even though we are a technology company, is providing that neutral data Switzerland type of an environment in which these very different personas with their very different mental models are able to collaborate without uh, creating any kind of an adversarial reaction. And I think that kind of uh, Swiss guidebook, um, it, it's so important because, again, secrecy has created a lot of silos in terms of groups and activities that are done within the industry. So, I mean, let's not even go further than um, than um, sustainability. There, there isn't really a streamlined standards uh, or at least reporting framework for people to do so. Um, so I think what, what, you, what you were saying it makes perfect sense, especially around trusts. And again, trust circulates back to secrecy. So I think secrecy really is the key word <laughs> of at least this first part of the chat. Uh, but I was going to ask as well, and because be, we're almost finishing this first part of um, of our conversation, then we'll move more towards the the market itself, hardcore. Um, what? How do you? Because of course you started something, and then as things progress, things become more uh, more solid, more foundation, more foundational. Um, it, it doesn't make sense, but it's just because the foundations just grow stronger. Uh, how, how do you still remain adaptable to new ideas, to new streams? Um, how how for example, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities in the data center space. How do you stay on track to focus on what you're doing and you don't start going here, there and everywhere uh, and kind of lose the, the sense of what the business is doing and then you try to do so much that it fails. How do you stay adaptable to all that um, yeah. and maintain a, not a stronghold, stronghold is the wrong word, but let's call it the stronghold to make sure that the train stays on track, they can still advance to new stations. So I think uh, no matter what perspective you have, you can always go deeper. So one thing I've learned, and you know, this is something uh, that I learned more as a as an academic researcher, is whatever your level of knowledge is today, it could be deeper. Um, so part of this is in order to remain adaptable, talk to lots of people, 
read loads. That's sort of a, a natural consume uh, consume learning material and content, you know, and 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 certainly um, engage in in that time. Uh, but also think and write yourself. So um, you know, all of these things uh, help. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's deepen your knowledge in the area. I think the industry in general, not just data centers, but professional life in general, really rewards uh, that depth. Um, and uh, um, so sometimes people are overly attracted to novelty, um, and that's fine. I think it, one should consume very, very broadly. Um, and it's been shown in literature and creativity as well, that people consume a lot of content, other people's content, become very creative in their origination of their own content as well. But then also, continue to go deeper and become more and more specific about a specific objective that you're helping uh, people achieve. And that becomes your ferry boat of how you add value to them. It's, um, is it correct to say it's come down, it comes down to focus, curiosity and focus? That's, that's a great, I very eloquently put, I couldn't have put it better. All right. And then just last question for this more personal side of the, the conversation. So what's been the best and the worst advice you've ever received? Um, let's take away the don't ask questions. I think we, we've got that one. Let's go with another bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I think uh, best advice I've ever received, which goes with what we were talking about previously, this focus and curiosity uh, uh, element, is Rolling Stones gather no moss. Um, so I think this is particularly targeted for entrepreneurs. Many entrepreneurs in their eagerness to pivot, um, you know, they, they sort of roll around and, and waste quite a bit of their time and energy um, without building something. So, uh, you know, I'd say um, focus that energy, don't be a rolling stone um, and kind of take advantage of your initial instinct where you want to create value. And, and as I said earlier, go deeper in that. Um, and it's actually advice that came from my brother. He, he reminds me of that very often, um, you know, and I, I think it applies more broadly as well. Um, another very uh, good advice I've received is um, a mind stretcher new idea does not return to its original dimension. Um, so people are extremely changeable and adaptable, even, even in very traditional industries like construction. Um, so although it seems in, sometimes impossible that one can move the needle in these old industries where very specific ways of doing things, uh, people are actually way more adaptable than you'd ever imagine. So just continuously working with them in a collaborative manner achieves the outcome, um, you know, in a, in a gradual uh, stepwise fashion. Um, bad advice. Uh, Lots of advice in uh, you know undergraduate days about get rich quick schemes. So don't jump yeah, in. The <laughs> there are no short circuits. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's no short, um, short, short, short ways of getting <laughs> making money. But uh, I, I well, think like success, is, success comes from grit. You know, it comes from yeah. hard work and consistency, and there isn't a short route to it. Yeah, and also I'm a big believer that if you haven't worked hard to achieve this success, you know actually will know what success is. Yeah, um, we can go just, lucky. I'm not against luck, and I, I wish. Yeah, luck. <laughs> yeah, and I mean luck is also part of the game. I, I know there's a lot of people that say, "Oh, it's not luck; it's hard work, this and that." But there has to be a bit of a luck. You have to position yourself though beforehand in a place where you can get lucky, because there's a time and a place to do something um, in uh, in the, the bigger history. Uh, book scheme of things but um, I, I totally agree with that and I like the two um, good advices 
uh, especially around the follow your gut sometimes so i think sometimes it's the best way especially as you start something uh it's about what sounds right what doesn't um and i think that the, the adaptability and how people can actually shift their mentality and how the brain once you know is more it never comes back um i think that's that's a very very good way um, of positioning it um and i think there is something that data center space does need more um in, in that sense um and we, we've seen it especially in the earlier days like the, the early 2010s uh, a lot of conversations not only was secretive like we've mentioned but a lot of them just revolved around the same thing it was the same over and over and over again so there was no evolution um in the conversation which is why it's so exciting now to see a whole new bunch of creatives coming into the sector um so more more financial people more lawyers more more people like yourself on the technology side um, the new tech side um they bring a different perspective to things so it's no longer just circling the same spin or the same circle uh, we're actually adding a lot of circles together to create a bigger wheel um but not reinventing the wheel i guess um, but uh, active things so much and then now we, we will shift now towards more uh, a proper market conversation and we, we've touched quite a lot on, on the market already uh, my first question was actually around the challenges within that is in the construction I think we've answered quite a few of those questions mm -hmm. but uh, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add around challenges um, beyond CPC and contracts and all that but maybe you have some some more things that we need to improve <laughs> absolutely look so I the biggest challenge which is actually a very exciting problem to have is the searing growth of the industry. Um, so just let's take the US alone. In terms of data center projects under construction, there was less than 500 megawatts of data center installed capacity under construction in 2020 in the US. Now there's nearly, depending on the estimates you look at, you know, between 4,000 to 5,000 megawatts of capacity under construction. Um, and between 1,000 to 1,800 megawatts of that data center capacity are AI-related data centers. So, you know, numbers vary, but between 7 to 10x growth uh, in four years is a skyrocketing growth. You know, even Amazon did not grow at this scale in terms of its revenue. So this is unprecedented and it almost mirrors venture capital world, even though we're talking about the physical world, the very, very large, you know, concrete and steel uh, and lots of cables. Um, so uh, I think the, the challenge that arises out of this very exciting opportunity is, is your team 7x bigger or better than 2020? Is your supply chain 7x bigger or better than 2020? And the answer for most data center builders is a resounding no. Um, so they have to figure out the new creative ways. So even if they've not faced some of the challenges like time overruns in the past, that performance is getting worse. We see that in the data. Um, and it's something they need to reckon with heads on. Uh, that's partly why we're interested in supplying AI in this world is because you need very lean teams or you only you have no option but to work with very lean teams and they need all the tools mature tools they can have to get leverage uh, for that kind of scaling and, and that's exactly so the talent on the talent fronts um and the number of staff available is exactly one of the biggest issues that we hear nowadays um and we know if, there was actually a study that came out this morning um that we're recording this podcast that came out that spain alone needs two thousand more people um, just to build data centers over the next three years. Um, yeah. That's one country um, who's, who's uh, it's not even halfway of its journey to build this industry, but you can then imagine that multiplied by all the other more than 100 countries around the world building data centers. So that's that's very interesting. Absolutely. Um, I, I was going to ask as well then, so shifting now the conversation from the challenges to the shifting that we need to, to, to do, um, it's how do you sort of envision sustainable mega projects being developed 
um, within the data center construction space. And I think my first question prior to that would be how, what is a mega project? How, how big is a mega project? What makes a mega project a mega project? Is it megawatts? Is it, um, I don't know, what, what's a mega project in your, in your field? Um, so from a University of Oxford rule of thumb definition, anything over a billion dollars in total capital expenditure is a mega project. Um, but that's, you know, uh, more or less a, a rule of thumb rather than a scientific definition per se. Anything over $100 million is a major project. Um, but the basic idea is these are very complex undertakings, lots of money at stake, so they can, you know, transform the company or the country, but they can also sink it in case they, they don't get it right. In the data center world, a hyperscale data center, you know, 9600 megawatts is most certainly a mega project. Uh, but you know, uh, but even smaller uh, projects, anything over ten mega uh, megawatts, is be becoming a relatively important project uh, with a series of complexities. A final thing to mention here is uh, is the complexity of your entire portfolio. So just because you've got lots of these projects ongoing, ten megawatts here, thirty there, ninety six somewhere else. All of this adds up to a mind-boggling variety. So, um, you know, and that scale um, is something to pay attention to because um, it, it creates nonlinear complexity. Okay, interesting. Uh, and then I was going to ask, how do you influence all that? Because, of course, you are the the the, the, the one of the founders um, of Foresight as well, but you're also a a founder director of the University of Oxford's program um, on sustainability mega projects. Um, beyond your work at Foresight, like I said. So how does your role between these two um, delve into the advancement of data center construction trends um, mm -hmm. and, and solutions? Um, so how, how do those two roles come together to, to, to make change? Absolutely. Great, great question, uh, Jean. So if you think about the iron triangle of project management, a physical scope you're looking to build, a budget that you have available, and the timeline to which you're looking to adhere, our insight through data and research interviews has been that companies obsessed with cost, but they don't pay enough attention to time. So almost every single company I've ever interviewed has a chief financial officer, a CFO. Not a single company I've ever met has a chief time officer. Um, and, and that shows in the way they operate. Uh, by, uh, you know, not having the adequate level of attention on time. So time is money, time is also revenue, uh, but also the kind of the insight there is the time is also physical scope. So whatever you're trying to build can be described as a sequence of events in a schedule. That schedule data uh, exists typically in a form of a uh, a tool known as Primavera P6 that Oracle now owns. Um, and then Microsoft has a competing product called Microsoft Project. And there's a number of other ones uh, out there. They form a network, a precedence network, as the industry calls. It's basically all the events that need to happen to go from an empty piece of land to a data center. Uh, so our insight spin that that sequence of events is a spine um, of the overall project and carries very important keys to improving its performance. Uh, it's the best way to collaborate because those event sequences require multiple parties showing up at different places in different times in a coordinated sequence. Um, so that's what where we RAI helps. We basically help to orchestrate all of that events uh, and all the multiple parties that are plugging in and out of the this this spine in order to make sure that people show up at the right place at the right time with the right tools, the right mindsets uh, to achieve that. Hmm. 
To build on your question, particularly around sustainability, the sustainability piece is the addition of rig up. So basic idea is in my iron triangle, the more traditional version, it's about scope, uh, cost and time, but I could add another triangle around safety, quality, and the environment or, or sustainability. So those three dimensions are more of a, a memory device rather than um, you know the the, the finite uh, dimension. Um, and the basic idea, uh, and of course, all of this in aid for benefits or revenue in case of private sector. So we can't forget about uh, the benefit side of the equation um, as well. This is all about rigor. So the more rigorous you're able to be about your scope definition, about your budget, about your timeline, the more rigorous you are about your safety, your quality, your environment, all of these things are indicative of management discipline and management quality. And high quality, high performing management teams that are rigorous about these multiple dimensions are able to consistently generate those benefits, not just for their own shareholders, but also for society at large. Okay. Well, I, I can imagine you going into a boardroom explaining that, and I assume it would be a kind of an easy sell. Um, is it like what, what do people think when you go to them? And uh, do you have maybe some sort of uh, I don't know, like general numbers, if we say we have a $1 billion project, a data center construction project to, to achieve um, X megawatts, do you have sort of uh, just an idea of how much can be saved in that way, so how much time or how much money um, can be saved using your um, your resources? Yeah. So look, I think most of the industry, holy grail is to try and build a 100 megawatt data center in 16 months. Uh, some executives in in you know moments of exuberance may say oh, we'll build them in eleven months, but I haven't seen it done. Because um, the other five don't count. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, industry is getting done in closer to thirty-two months, so they're getting they're sort of doubling. There's a lot of margin there. Um, so part of this is and and uh, you know is really seeing the data for what it is. So, you know, don't feel like you're being blamed, like kind of like neuter the stigma, you know. Um, sometimes we look at that data and the instinct to try and justify it somehow. Oh, it was COVID. Oh, it was that. Um, you know, these are circumstances outside our control. Um, so part of the first journey, which is kind of Machiavelli says, um, is to really look at the world the way it really is. And that is sort of the first step to overcoming some of our innate human cognitive biases as well, specifically optimism bias, is to look at the data for what it really is without getting too emotionally involved with it. And if it's showing a delay, um, you know, verify that that delay exists. So, you know, feel free to do your work, but don't try and defend it and blame the stars and the moon. You know, look at really areas in which uh, as as a team, you may may have underestimated that delay, and then look for ways in which you really try and 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 turn that screw. Um, for data centers in specifically, uh, these things, uh, you know, there are a variety of areas where people lose time. But design and commissioning are two areas that are particular Achilles heel. Um, so I'm assuming that some of the site selection work such has been done, and part of that is kind of an ongoing activity. So that pipeline development is not necessarily, although there are delays in pipeline development as well, it's not really as um, business critical uh, because you're always looking at multiple sites at a given time. But once execution starts, 
design seems to really be uh, a hangman's knot. And then once you get through design and um, construction and fit out, et cetera, the commissioning piece um, you know, can be torturous uh, in, in many cases. Um, so I've seen data centers, the budget as little as three months for commissioning, uh, sometimes even less. And this, they are, it's painful for them to discover that a year's gone by and they're still commissioning, um, you know, so um, extreme examples do exist in, in, in that sense. So, so that would be kind of my, my core message is, uh, is really see the world for what it really is, diagnose that without emotion, be impartial, um, you know, and, and just you don't have to blame the external environment. L look at this as an opportunity to do it better next time and make it more repeatable. It's almost like um, under promise and over deliver. Um, I, 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 I find that example of the three months quite, it is quite extreme because I mean, <clears throat> and of course it comes case by case because you could, if it's a very, very, very small data center, maybe three months um, yeah. it could be achievable, but it gets to a stage and it's not a big stage that it gets to that you just know three months are not going to work, especially in the current macroeconomic environment. Absolutely. Um, and I think that part of this is, you know, sales objectives, right? So if you're making really aggressive sales targets to your onward buy of your data center services, uh, and suddenly you're stuck with a very unhappy customer because the construction is not getting done. So to kind of go back to your original question of where our value comes in, when the performance is really bad, uh, like people are taking 32 months to build a hyperscale data center, we can help them shave up to a year relatively quickly. So the, with a few very strong moves, assuming with the support of the whole team, you can unleash a lot of performance very, very quickly. It's a bit like fitness. If somebody is really out of shape and if they make up their mind to get into shape, just a few quick fixes of eating the right calories, exercising a, uh, you know, a few times a week will give them immediate results very, very quickly. Um, but then if you're already quite fit and you want to become an elite athlete, then that's really bogged down. You have to really be on a program uh, and achieve those incremental uh, improvements uh, with, with daily wins. So, so that can be, will be my, my two ways of thinking about, uh, about the, uh, our, our value. Think of it like a fitness coach. coach. Just like if the, if the project is really out of shape, bring it into, sh uh, into some level of shape into average performance is e relatively easy. To go from average to above average then requires the daily grind uh, and sticking to that program. I think that's a very good analogy, especially with the elite, because um, I mean, everyone is striking to be part of the elite, um, but we, we know not everyone's going to be able to win. So sometimes also understanding your place in the market with the with the strategy of that, that, that operator um, and what you're trying to achieve. Again, staying on, on track without trying to do too much. Uh, and maybe you might get there, but uh, some people try to rush it from the get-go and then they get bogged down. Um, as you said, with 32-month delivery time, sometimes even worse than that, um, depending on, on the location that you're trying to build. Um, Absolutely. But I mean, same thing, you know, in the megawatt installed, like we see data centers being built for as much as $13 million per megawatt installed capacity, or, you know, higher in some cases. That's too much. You know, we know that you could you could really uh, improve upon that uh, with a similar similar mindset. Absolutely. And I mean, we I think the most expensive I've seen was probably in Japan or South Korea, uh, where it was, I can't remember exactly, 16 to 18 million um, per megawatts, um, yeah. but we, we know those are expensive places to build, so we yes. don't go there. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask as well, because I mean, of course, we were talking about this being a very secretive industry and everything. And then when you rock up at their door and you knock at the door and be like, right, we can help you, but we need this data. Um, so first question is, what data do you need to do your job? Mm -hmm. um, and to 
how willing are these people to give you their data? Because um, this is not an industry that likes to share um, even not operational data, let alone operational data. <laughs> really, really good question. So look, first of all, like uh, one of the interesting things about laws of averages is that if you do average things, you get average performance, right? So part of this is uh, if you want to do above average performance, you have to do something different uh, than what the average is doing. So that's quite a strong motivating argument for them to say, okay, let's try and really look at our data and look at what, what it's saying to us. Um, the net advantage of that is, it, you know, it raises, it improves the average of the whole industry. So as, you know, really below average projects perform better and better, and the elite ones also tweak their performance, actually the whole industry gets pulled to a high level of maturity, which is ultimately the vision that we're playing into is, uh, is upskilling, not just internal teams, but also the entire supply network. And that upskilling means better margin for the trades. It means better revenue for the developers and it means you know happy customers for the hyperscalers. Uh, so I think those are the sort of the arguments that people do listen to. Uh, uh, now, in terms of data confidentiality and data security, we provide them a great deal of assurance around that. We have, uh, we comply to high standards cybersecurity, such as the ISO standards or uh, Cyber Essentials Plus, uh, etc. So, um, you know, we work with Ministry of Defense, for instance, so we have um, you know, a very high level of accreditation when it comes to dealing with very sensitive data. Um, and then second thing is ultimately any technology tool, like, you know, um, your Excel spreadsheets, they're stored in the cloud. Uh, so a tool like Foresight is no different than your spreadsheet in the sense that you're committing really valuable information in, in Excel as well. Uh, but it doesn't leak out. It's just you know, there's, it's, it's in nobody's incentive uh, to do that because companies like us, um, you know, survive uh, uh, on our credibility uh, and trustworthiness. Um, so, you know, those are the key reasons why people take the leap. And every company starts in a, in a measured way, you know, and then we are totally support that uh, is for them to test the waters uh, step by step. Ultimately, we are improving their workflows in a dramatic way. Um, and that requires a change management angle, which we then support with a huge amount of um, educational material and advice. And, um, you know, I sort of put on my professorial hat back on um, to, to you know, go back to an earlier question you say, how the two things relate. In many ways, the technology is almost like a workbook that gets you to that higher level of performance. But the real crux is the, uh, is the uh, you know, huge amount of advice from practitioners in the whole industry who try and condense into software code. I, I think that's, that's very interesting. And I, I also assume that it doesn't take too long for them to see the value. Exactly. Um, of bringing in a tool like it. So even though the, the beginning can be quite hard, I guess soon after they start easing out a little bit on uh, what to share. Um, four weeks is all you need to, to end the yeah, simple. Four months. <laughs> four weeks is what you need. Four weeks, to, sorry. Yeah, to see whether you, your run rate is increasing on a particular job, you know. So again, providing you commit to it, uh, again, going back to my fitness example, uh, you know, just because you've started eating better, uh, moving more, sleeping better, you know, you expect to see results within within a month. Um, hmm. so it's, it's those very long term aims are achieved on a on a weekly cycle. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and then, so talking about now, 
the business and how the business is going to do over the next, I don't know, 12, 24 months. What sort of the the the, the plan to, I don't know, to expand, build the team, go into new geographies? Uh, so maybe you can also give us a bit of a background of where you operate. So, because we are, we are speaking in the UK, uh, but you also do projects in other countries. Um, so, yeah, just give us a spin of where you are in terms mm -hmm. of locations, clients and everything and stuff. And what's going to be the, the near long-term future plan? Uh, where do you want to go? <laughs> Where's the trade so, going to take you? Foresight is a global company. So uh, I'm based in London, but I'm very often uh, in the US, for example, or Australia. Um, you know, we have uh, teams in the US and in Israel. Um, so we've been fast expanding. We're a venture capital-backed uh, company. Um, and as such, you know, we're growing rapidly around the world uh, with a lot of traction in the US. Um, you know, uh, just again, given the huge data center build um, happening there. Um, so we have a subscription-based model. Um, so, um, you know, people, companies find it frugal and relatively straightforward to initially experiment and then adopt into their workflow um, our technology. Um, and, and we're seeing that happen, that growth happen really rapidly. Um, and we're growing our team commensurately to, to support that. So, um, you know, I think for the foreseeable future, I'll be taking loads of flights, both in uh, Western Northern Europe, as well as across US and Canada um, to meet and support all of our customers. Very interesting. Anything more within the, the emerging world? Uh, absolutely. So we, uh, you know, we work, uh, I mean, I guess with data centers, the emerging world includes, you know, markets like yeah, two uh, markets in Europe as well, yeah. Australia or, yeah. you know, um, so in that sense, you know, uh, that's very much uh, an area where we're getting a lot of traction as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, obviously we work with companies and countries uh, across the world. So some of our uh, uh, customers may be headquartered in Paris, but they have projects in Mexico, in um, uh, India, in, you know, farther afield um, in, in various African countries. So, um, you know, that's, and that's the exciting piece is um, projects are, portfolios are global by their very essence. Um, and at this point with the data center market, um, I'm, I don't know any major data center developer that isn't building simultaneously a project in Jakarta, in Kuala Lumpur, in Northern Virginia, in you know Frankfurt and in West London at the same time. And uh, you know, that's kind of just the trend of where it's going. Yeah, and I'll go further and say the ones that are not and just building maybe one asset somewhere, um, it's just kind of building it to to sell it out very quickly <laughs> yes, <laughs> so for someone true. to try to come in. Um, but uh, I know I know we're reaching the end of our conversation as well, but I wanted to ask something because we are talking about AI, we're talking about uh, data centers, uh, and we've already mentioned the, the talent and the, the staff shortage. Uh, and this, again, is a big worry. I think this is up there in terms of worries when it comes to data centers alongside power um, in most markets. How, but, but let me spin that now towards the, the more younger generations um, so the, the Gen Zs and uh, the generation after them. Um, how, I mean, do they need to be worried about technologies like yours coming into to market um, in terms of removing them from the workforce or will this create new opportunities for them to join the workforce with different, with new jobs, um, some of them that we might not even know. How, I mean, paint is a picture of where AI is going to sit in the middle of all this in terms of jobs for younger people coming into market. You know, so I think uh, uh, technologies don't take jobs. Technologies create jobs. So we've been in a series of relentless technological revolutions since 1850s. Uh, and human populations, meanwhile, 
you know, exploded, uh, and that's only increased prosperity. So, um, you know, just because we switched from manual uh, routing of, of road traffic to signaling doesn't mean that suddenly those you know jobs are no longer available. Um, in fact, like it was an awful thing to put human beings in sweltering heat trying to direct traffic. Um, you know, a signaling system uh, does that a lot better with far less human misery. So I think young people should not fear this stuff. They should embrace this technology all of these forms of technology completely heads on because it's going to create tremendous prosperity, tremendous uh, opportunity. So computing industry, for example, you know, Microsoft was a very small company in 1970s in Seattle. Um, I was in Seattle two weeks ago uh, to meet some of our customers there. Um, Seattle is a, is a booming economy because of very large tech companies that are there. And all of those jobs have been woven out of thin air because of the success of these tech companies. So I think this wake of the AI revolution um, is creating that as well. We're already seeing, you know, from chip manufacturing to construction itself, to cabling, to uh, advances in software, to AI to remove, reduce the uh, power consumption, to building on-site fuel cells and eventually potentially small modular nuclear reactors. There's a whole litany of very new, exciting uh, technologies and industries that are being spawned because of the growth of this industry. And all of them present very compelling, very lucrative jobs for young graduates. So, you know, uh, study hard subjects, uh, work hard, and uh, the, the future is bright. Um, I think you brought some ease to the conversation, but you also touched on the, on the, on the Pandora box um, about the new things coming, especially nuclear and stuff. And um, I mean, we don't have the time to go into it today, but there's, there could be a whole new conversation um, around power uh, and what's coming up. I mean, nu nuclear is super interesting. Everyone's looking at it. It's hydrogen as well. Um, and I mean, yeah, well, let's let's not go there because if I start asking questions, we're going to be here <laughs> another hour or two. Uh, but uh, so, Atif, the, the last question I usually ask everyone, uh, they, they bring everything around um, to a closing. It's, uh, what's your favorite quote by who and why? Great. So I gave you already a few of my favorite quotes, but I know, I know. <laughs> now I'm waiting for a new one. <laughs> courtesy of, of one of my colleagues, and and it comes from Yates. And the idea is education is not the pouring of something, uh, but the ignition of a light uh, uh, in people. Um, I've butchered the exact quote, but the basic idea is um, often exposure to new ideas, exposure to education, is really an ignition of a of a lifelong burning fire um, and nobody can pour that into you uh, they can only spark that but ultimately you have to feel that fire I, I couldn't agree more with that and um, it is down to to you doing your homework a little bit um, to ignite that fire as you said uh, mm -hmm. but uh, Dr. Atif Ansari executive chairman and co-founder of Foresight Works thank you so much for talking to me thank you John and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Thank you again to our sponsor, Prescott Co., a leading award-winning City of London law firm internationally recognized for its expertise in the digital infrastructure industry, as well as the telecoms and tech sector more broadly. Feel free to reach out to them at www.prescott.com. Do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.